Aloha. Welcome to The Conversation, Hawaii Talks. I'm Catherine Cruz. The state logs yet another traffic fatality. Over the weekend, we take time to consider what's behind the numbers. We look at the reliability of our power grid here on Oahu, following blackouts and bad weather this month, and there's more rain in the forecast. And collage art, images of a dreamy state come together in a downtown exhibit. Storyteller Jeff Geerich shares why he made the leap into tangible artwork. And we hear from classical violinist Midori, who performs in a concert tonight. We'll learn how she's evolved since hitting the international stage as a child prodigy more than 40 years ago. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Hawaii's roadways claimed yet another life this week. This time, a 19-year-old motorcyclist in Maui died from his injuries after he was hit from behind. Today on The Long View, our contributing editor, Neil Milner, talks about traffic safety. Good morning. Good morning. Yeah, I believe that was that case was Maui's first fatality so far this year. Well, it was pretty early, and although this state does okay traffic fatality-wise compared to what I'm going to talk about in a minute, um, motorcycles are still pretty vulnerable uh, here, and so that's a, that's a problem. But what is really important and intriguing is the spike in uh, traffic fatalities over the last couple of years. This is, what's, this is what happened. There was a huge spike during the year around 2021 to 2022, uh, during the COVID year, uh, a huge spike as one emergency room specialist in accidents said it was like someone flipped a, sp- a switch. It's dropped both here, which is a small scale, and nationally a little bit since 2022, but it's still well above pre-COVID levels. So there's all kinds of reasons why people think the, it went up then. And, and oh, by the way, we're driving less now mm. uh, there was a slight uh, drive in that some reasons and we'll get back to the covid related psychological ones in a second sometimes uh, less enforcement uh that police had other priorities uh, some of it had to do with um various issues like um other other things going on at the same time having to use resources for covid and we know that Enforcement can make a difference in this. But the fundamental issue here, the one that we really don't know much about yet, is how much of this spike is permanent. Um, And there's reasons to think about it might be permanent as well as reasons to think it might drop. By permanent, I mean it's going to stay somewhere higher than than it's been. We've had historically three spikes in uh, traffic deaths in this country. And the spike and the reasons they got mitigated can be easily explained for two of them, but not for this one at least as yet. The first spike was around the early 1900s when you had a bunch of clueless people getting, you know, if you're used to a horse and all of a sudden (laughs) you're driving a horseless carriage, the accidents went way up. The other one was in the 50s and 60s, my generation, uh, growing up as a teenager, when you had muscle car time, big cars, cars had a lot of um, a lot of horsepower and no safety devices at all. Mm. And what fundamentally changed that? Because after that, until 2000, 
into the 2000s, the death toll dropped because Congress passed a law that required the law basically says, you know what, we're setting the standards for your automakers in terms of safety. You're, you know, it's not just the driver's responsibility anymore. We're setting the standards. And so you began to get stuff like seatbelts and so right. on. Safer cars. That, safer yeah. cars. And that made a difference. They dropped again. This one is kind of different because there isn't a good explanation yet. But the, the crazy stuff that's going on, an increase in joyriding, an increase in street racing, um, an increase in, in bad behavior – all of these kinds of things have spiked and, in fact, the decrease in seatbelt use. Mm. So what the recent piece, and this is a piece that was in New York Times Magazine last week, what they're talking about is the role of anger and the role of a kind of cultural shift. And that's a kind of interesting one which might be harder to change because at the same time now the federal government has gotten interested in more money for car safety. There's a $5 billion amount of uh, money that the Department of Transportation is making available. At the same time there are more safety devices in cars, you have this increase in uh, this kind of uh, this kind of cultural shift in what people do. And as one psychologist put it, a car, if you want an anger machine, mm. a car is, is it. Yeah. And again, we road know. Road rage. Road rage. <laughs> well, it isn't even road rage. Yeah, it's, it's all kinds of stuff. If you're frustrated, it shows up in your driving. And they've done all kinds of uh, experiments to show that this is kind of case. But the one that the AAA every year does this kind of traffic culture survey, right? And there's a big increase in distracted driving. Forty percent of the people yes, say we drive distracted sometime during the year. Running stop signs, all this kind of stuff, um, and it's gone up. It's gone up, and these are behaviors that may be a little hard to change. And one of the things that also shows up on that survey is that people know they're doing it wrong and know that the people that they love and trust would say you're doing it wrong, but they keep doing it anyway. So you have this kind of um, let's call it the psychological anger side of it. Mm -hmm. And by the way, the anger that gets reflected in, in driving has become much more a part of American politics and culture generally. This is not a, this is a very kind of angry, depressed uh, uh, group of uh, people in society right now. So the real question becomes, we can continue to have more safety devices, and the cars are, are getting to be that way. Smarter cars. Smarter yeah, cars. Like, some of it is just passive. You know, some of it you don't have to do anything to use. Uh, at the same, and you're getting more interest in traffic uh, uh, calming. You, know, you and I were just talking about it, and you see it here. Um, more warnings about driving, more you know, rumble strips, more protection for bicycles, which may not be that good yet, but compared to what it used to be, it's, it's much better. But we don't know now how much of these kinds of changes, this kind of psychological shift is going to be able to be countered and how much of that is, you know, how much of that is permanent. The really interesting question to me is that we really yet don't understand the kind of long-term social effects of COVID. We certainly mm -hmm. have a lot of stuff about what happened during that time. What I mean is, you know, there's a long health COVID, but there may be a kind of long social COVID where people's behavior and attitudes changed in some important fundamental ways that we don't yet understand. I'm not saying that's true for driving, but I think it's much more 
feasible an explanation to look into more. Well, I, I just know that I, I keep hearing people racing down the freeway. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I have friends in Milwaukee who won't, they don't worry about the crime rate, which in, in fact in lots of cities has really gone down. They won't drive on certain streets because of the crazy behavior. Yeah, bad behavior. People coming along on the right side and, and passing you up. Yeah, I mean, I feel a little bit. And running lights. Yes. This is, the, God, people run lights all the time here. Yeah, I'm guilty. <laughs> I, I don't know if I've I'll got, be watching for you. Yeah, I'll see if I get a, a, a I won't give an obscene gesture because that tends to escalate stuff. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I know someone in my family got, got written up because they did what they called a Hollywood stop. Well, you don't oh, really yeah. stop. <laughs> oh, no. I once got nailed when I was driving a truck as a young, you know, in college. And a guy said, you ran a stop sign, unmarked car. And I said, well, who are you to tell me that I ran a stop sign? And he held up. He was the chief of police Ooh, in that ouch. suburb. Okay. Right? Yeah, well, so. you know, but I mean, I'm here to tell about it. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> the, lots of efforts uh, you know, underway now to, you know, lower the drink, the li- limit yes. for uh, uh, drinking under the influence. You know, we've got the sure. discussion about the, the traffic cams, the, the red light cams. That kind of thing. And then all those roundabouts and the humps and the rumble strips on the road. Just remember that they're put in there essentially to annoy drivers. <laughs> I mean, go. this is not drivers for so long like us have assumed that giving the driver the brake is the uh, established rule. We've begun to change our priorities a little bit, which is to make it. So when you make it inconvenient for a driver, you may be yeah. making it conven- uh, convenient for a pedestrian. Okay, well, uh, drive safe on the way home, Neil. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> okay. Well, we've been talking to our contributing editor, Neil Milner, for a segment we call The Long View. We'll have links to the articles on traffic safety up on the conversation page of our website later today. This week's performance for HPR's Hawaii Classical Music Series is sold out. Mahalo for your support. This performance will be recorded for a later broadcast. For alerts on live performances at our Atherton studio, sign up for our free email newsletter at hawaiipublicradio.org. Sponsored by Farm Lovers Markets. Support for HPR comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, celebrating 75 years, offering the global MBA with 21-month, 24-month, and 36-month options. Scheidler.hawaii.edu On the next Fresh Air, award-winning actress and producer Tracy Ellis Ross. She co-stars in two new films, the satirical movie American Fiction and the thriller Cold Copy, which explores the boundaries of journalistic integrity. We'll talk about her career and growing up as the daughter of Diana Ross. Join us. Fresh air beginning this afternoon in three following On Point.
This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. Today, we're inspecting the royal jewels. Shortly after Queen Liliuokalani was removed from power in 1893, the responsibility of being the Iolani Palace Keymaster was transferred from Chamberlain James Robertson to the provisional government's new custodian, R.J. Green. Uh, During this process, an essential step is taking inventory of the palace contents. And during the inspection, Robertson and Green found a leather trunk in the Chamberlain's locked basement uh, office that had been busted open. It was supposed to contain the crowns of two former Hawaii monarchs, but one was missing and the other had been stripped clean. Every jewel, including the six-carat diamond atop the Maltese cross, had been taken and everything else left behind. For today's Backyard Quiz, can you tell us who the vandalized crown belonged to and who was arrested and charged for the crime? Call 808-941-3689 or toll-free 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. First one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag from HPR. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing parents and children experiencing homelessness with opportunities to secure housing, including Family Promise of Hawaii. NareetHawaii.com. When it comes to power grid reliability across the country, Hawaii ranks in the middle of the pack. That's according to the latest national survey based on blackouts. Today, HBR reporter Savannah Harriman Poe joins us to talk about the recent outages that Oahu saw early this month. Good morning, Savannah. Good morning, Catherine. Thanks for having me. Yes. Yeah. I mean, uh, it was unusual when earlier this month we saw Hawaiian Electric put out a schedule saying, hey, you know, you, we're going to be doing half-hour brownouts, I guess, right, uh, across the island. Absolutely. In fact, this was the first time that they had initiated those types of rolling blackouts and brownouts on Oahu since 2015. So it doesn't happen often. And I just want to make a, a clarification for listeners. We do see power outages um, as a result of stormy weather relatively regularly and this is you know you get strong winds you get down lines the power gets cut out but what happened on january 8th was that heco had to cut power to customers because it didn't have enough electricity to meet demand so i called up hawaiian electric just because i wanted to understand how that happened because it's so infrequent and basically a lot of things went wrong at once first off 
Heathrow had scheduled maintenance for many of its power generating units already on the books for January. And that's not uncommon because January is after the holidays, after the fall season, when demand for energy starts to get a little bit lower. But then in addition to that, they found that more power generating units needed repairs. So unexpected um, units went offline. Come morning of January 8th, it still looked like we were going to be okay for producing energy throughout that day. But then we got some of the storming weather that we've been seeing all month, which reduced the amount of solar energy we were able to pull, pull from the grid. And then in addition to that, on that day, three more power generating units went offline. This is what Heatgo's Colton Ching had to say about the situation. And so suddenly over the course of a few hours, we went from um, having sufficient generation that day, going into that day for the evening, later that day in the early afternoon with all of these additional things that occurred on our system. Uh, we projected to uh, fall very tight and, and slightly short of power to serve the peak load in, in the evening. And so that's when we made the decision uh, to call for conservation and to announce that we could be initiating rolling blackouts. Yeah, I mean, I appreciated that ad advance notice. I was in an event in Kaimuki, and we thought, uh-oh, power's going to go out 7 to 7.30, not good. But then it never did go out um, until like 9 for very shortly. But Hawaiian Electric was telling me, well, we didn't need to uh, institute some of those because the demand was far less. Right. So there's a distinction here between the call for conservation and the rolling blackouts. They asked folks to conserve to maybe bring down some of that demand and lessen the amount of energy that they would have to produce to provide for customers that evening. They did ultimately have to cut the power off in kind of 30 minute increments um, between about eight and 10 o'clock. But it was less than what they thought they might have to do when they made the call for conservation around 5.30 that evening. Yeah, and the key thing was the energy storage, right? There were some facilities that just didn't have capacity kind of stored up. Right, so this is an interesting question because when we look at our grid, something that's come online increasingly are these utility-scale energy storage facilities, one of which is KES, uh, the Kapil couple uh, energy storage facility, which has been in operation for a couple of weeks, but had not actually officially announced that it was on the grid. That announcement was to, supposed to come the following day. Um, but those energy storage facilities are able to balance out the grid. And in instances like this, they can be used to give energy back to the grid to help meet with that shortfall. What we did see um, because of the stormy weather is there wasn't the ability to fully charge and then recharge those facilities to continue to deliver energy throughout the day. So Colton Chang said that uh, the Kapolei Energy Storage Facility was charged up to about 80% and all of that went to meet daytime demand uh, as well as energy that was stored up in facilities, a couple of other facilities across Oahu. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think Hawaiian Electric had said, too, that they had, I think, some issues with uh, some of their uh, wind uh, 
projects, but they, they didn't have battery storage. I think those were older facilities. Right, right. And something that they're considering a, a sort of lessons learned from this January 8th event is how energy storage facilities play into the grid. So KES is unique in the fact that you can charge it up um, using any sort of power source, so solar, wind, or even oil. But not all of our energy facility storage um, systems that are on the grid work that way. Many of the other ones that we have have to be charged up with solar because they are directly tied to and under contract with solar power plants. So we don't have as much flexibility in how we use those storage facilities when we're kind of in these tight energy demand situations. And that's something that they're trying to reconsider so that they have more flexibility in the future. Yeah, and uh, not all the communities had their power cut. Correct. And also, because of that stormy weather, some communities had their power cut, but it was in, un, not in relation to the rolling blackouts. So just before 8 p.m., HECO decided to, to start cutting the power, and they tried to keep the blackouts to 30 minutes or less in each community. And Colton Shane says there are several other factors that they have to consider as well when they institute blackouts. If we have to um, cut power in areas during a morning or evening rush hour period, we try to avoid cutting power off on major thoroughfares and shutting power off at traffic lights, for example. And then we set that pool of circuits and communities in a rolling blackout but to as much as possible exclude critical loads. So hospitals, major communications, uh, we have a long list of critical customers that we try to not uh, interrupt during one of these rolling outages. And we, we schedule that out and we then you know roll an outage from one community for half an hour and then we switch it to another community. And the amount of customers we take out uh, in each of these half an hour blocks is dependent upon how much of a shortfall we think we're going to have at that point in time. So what does all this mean for grid reliability? Well, one shortfall event every decade or so is pretty standard. Um, and HECO's target is actually to have one every four and a half years. So the fact that their last one was in um, 2015 means we're still on track. They're trying to bring that number down so it's even less frequent. But I spoke to Richard Rochelow. He's the director of the director of the Hawaii Natural Energy Institute, and he's been conducting these grid reliability assessments of Oahu for HECO since 2021. And I wanted him to give me basically the big picture. And he said having a system where nothing ever breaks is unrealistic, but he is concerned about how often our energy infrastructure is needing repairs. That's in a very important parameter in terms of what's the likelihood of there being a shortfall in capacity. I mean, if you have systems and they just randomly go out more often, it means you need a larger margin, you need more reserve. Uh, it, it probably means it's time to update and renew some of your generation systems, which the utility is trying to do now. But we operate with some of the oldest generating systems in the in the country, I think. Yeah, and Hawaiian Electric is uh, uh, in a mode right now to upgrade a lot of those plants because that's 
kind of what happened with the, the outages that we saw earlier this month. It's the, the failures were in a lot of those um, plants. Yes, certainly. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> All right. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Savannah. Thank you. That was HBR Savannah Harriman Pope talking to us about the reliability of our power grid following the rolling blackouts that we saw here on Oahu earlier this month. Support for HPR comes from SMS Consulting, providing data-driven strategic planning and evaluation services to nonprofits, businesses, and government agencies in Hawaii. Learn more at smshawaii.com. Are you interested in working for one of Hawaii's most dynamic media organizations? HPR is looking to hire a full-time board operator with experience in digital media production and broadcasting. If you're a quick study, possess strong time management skills, have a dynamic on-air presence, and if you enjoy new and interesting workplace challenges, HPR wants to hear from you. Visit hawaiipublicradio.org slash jobs to learn Support more. Support for HPR comes from Kumu Kahua Theater. Aitu Fafine, about Robert Louis Stevenson's final days in Samoa, examines an author's imagination in a mystical space. Opens tomorrow. Kumukahua.org. You may know Jeff Gear as a master storyteller and producer of the Talk Story Festival for more than 25 years. But today we explore another dimension of his creativity. Gear asks, when you dream, are your eyes open? He explores themes of fantasy and the subconscious in a new exhibit called Dreams of Waking at the Downtown Art Center. The Conversations Lillian Song sat down with Gear to talk about sharing mindscapes that are a curious collection of images that make up this collage show. Humans spend a third of our lives sleeping, and what goes on inside our minds while we dream, and what does it look like? Well, today we sit down with Jeff Gear to learn about his art exhibit at the Downtown Art Center entitled Dreams of Waking. Welcome to the conversation, Jeff. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> as somebody who has been on the show many times, but more in the capacity as a storyteller, mm-hmm. today you're here to talk about 50 collage images, most of which will be on view for the first time ever based around your mind space in REM. Yeah, how about that? So talk about it. How, how did this come about? If you think about storytelling, it's a guided visualization exercise done in public. The audience's eyes are open, but what they're seeing is not in front of their eyes. So the nervous system is providing the visuals to the cues that the storyteller is given. Mm. Therefore, storytelling is a visual art, even if it's based on what most people assume to be literature or written word. Spoken word is at the source image. Now, Mr. Jeff, your creative drama specialist and storyteller that you invited onto the show, spends a lot of time alone. I go to all my shows, but when I come home, I'm not doing a show. So for just aerobics of the imagination, just to keep myself loose, just to play around. Mm. You know, we've got more visual information in this century than any other people on the earth. Magazines, brochures, uh, sales pitches. Mm. So if I see something I like, I cut it out. And then I file them under uh, numerous drawers in my converted bedroom studio. So ocean, 
Pele, interior interiors. These are all themes that I work with. I'll just get a big, over 15 years of sorting through pictures, I'll open up that drawer and say, okay, today I'm gonna start collaging. Now, if you keep collaging, you, you just kind of amass a multitude of images, most of which I show to my wife. She says occasionally, you should show them to other people. They're really good. Yeah, 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 yeah. I do so much public stuff. But the downtown art center is one of those places where you can walk in with a harebrained idea. Hey, let's have a collage exhibit. They'll say yes. And they did. So I did. Now, the images are cockamamie. They're weird. They're a little embarrassing because they, they are not literal. They're not illustrations. They're surreal, they're dream, they're beds on fire, there are things floating up, there's things sinking in, there's fish swimming through the bedroom. Uh, they're sort of disturbing. Out of the bed comes a mask, behind the mask there is a skull, behind the skull there is an apartment and the name of the collage is, your space is assured, you too will die. Not everybody wants that in their living room. That's okay with me because I'm not trying to put something in their living room. I'm trying to express what came up from the subconscious. There's another thought. Lillian, when you dream, are your eyes open? Depends on how tired I am. <laughs> Most people would say no. When I dream, I'm asleep. Okay. So your dreaming is another example of imagery being supplied by the brain without using the eye. Mm. This theme of dreams, it's not new to you. No. No, these, these images have come together over 25 years. I keep thinking I'm doing something and then I'll go, oh no, that goes in the collage file. Because when I'm through with the collages, what am I gonna do with them? I put them in a drawer. And finally the drawer starts to say, well, I'm getting full, so what do you got here? Mm -hmm. So I've got interior interiors, I've got uh, soundscapes, I've got, uh, <laughs> You got a one? great collection, just yeah. like colors. So it's by themes. Yeah. How Pops, do you? Pops, blings, and snaps is one mm -hmm. folder. No one's called lines, dots, and oddities. One's called celestial bodies. You know, what do you do with all those naked people who are in classical paintings? Put them with the stars. Oh, there so you they're go. new constellations, making up new designs. So I've got a background, a, a landscape of a, a country. Turn it upside down. Then I find a back of a woman drowning, reaching up out of the water for something. I cut that out and put it on the country road. So suddenly I've got something going on. So I may not know what other pieces are gonna go in there. So I'll glue it up because if I don't glue it up, then it'll be an idea that's gone. Okay. So I wanna keep moving things forward. I don't know how it's gonna end up like a story or like life, but I'm making a move. I'm taking a step. I'm moving towards something which may become an event. Each artist is different, but this is how you create. Yeah. So it's always wonderful to just learn, like, what is your process? And you are pre-Photoshop. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm, You're I'm old school. Old. High-touch, low-tech. So these little Ooh. universe, these collages, I've spent a lot of time making sure everything there is there because I put it there. And I don't usually show them. So I'm the only one who says yes or no. It's not like I've got a deadline for somebody to see. These are like, I'm gonna, I'm the one who watches them day and night. I'm the one who's gonna see them for another 20 years. So if they don't please me, they go in the drawer file called sorta good, but not good enough. Ongoing. Yeah, or I'm gonna destroy you later. Oh, no. <laughs> oh yes. And I have, cut them up creatively. 
Now, when you put stuff on the wall, I didn't know what was going to happen. And most visual artists are happy to just let the viewer have whatever responses they have, and they'll sit in the back of the room and just watch it or drink a glass of wine. No, I'm a performer. I like, I, this is like my, you know, it's taken me 25 years to get this collection of 50 images together. Now they're up on a wall. I want to talk to people. Looking at the pictures of your exhibit, uh-huh. I was just really drawn to the sharp lines. How are you putting them down on paper? How are you cutting them out? Because people they're are so always seamless. So, yeah. so in these Saturday sessions, mm-hmm. every Saturday at two o'clock at the Downtown Art Center, I invite people to come. And some of it's me talking about the stuff, but a lot of it is like giving them assignments, matching them up with somebody they don't know, and they talk, and they don't want to stop talking. And part of it, Lillian, was the same kind of thing. Do we all have the same interpretation? Do we do we all see differently? What I've discovered is that people have a really good vocabulary of, I recognize the pretty girl by the car, so they want me to buy the car. I want to buy the car so I can be with the pretty girl. But this is in that kind of way. This is kind of like, what? I don't know what he was thinking. So I give it a title. And then I say, the first assignment is, with there's an image that you like, carefully with your finger, go over it and describe to your partner what you actually see. Because most people don't see. You have to slow yourself down. Art takes a while to soak in. You need to exercise yourself to slow down, shut up, and let what's put in front of your nose sink in and resonate. You're giving them permission to just be in the moment. I think nowadays people are so rushed. I'm actually requiring them to. I'm saying you're going to do this and you're going to talk to your friend who's going to witness it. Mm-hmm. And they they really get involved and they start seeing stuff they never saw before and, they, and then the conversations just go on and on. Then we change partners and it's just been fascinating. Even the, I call two o'clock, but sometimes they show up late. Sometimes in the middle of 3.30, somebody walks in. Quiet it's already, time. Yeah, hey man, what's going on here? Or people, we're already done and a couple comes in and they're just like fascinated. So I've had all these chances to talk to people about the visual art that's been in, only in my house. <laughs> so this is their big outing in the public. And you know, it's been fascinating. Mm-hmm. People have really responded, and they often say, I just didn't see what was there until I came in the door and you started making me look at it. <laughs> well, you know, every time I, I get to sit down with a fellow creative, my mind just pings. There you go. So thanks for sharing. And before we close, though, anything that you really want to share with those who are tuned in today before we say goodbye? You know, the world is an amazing place and the mind is an even bigger landscape from whence you can draw inspiration and curious correlations. And the collages are curious correlations between objects that have nothing to do with each other and find a resonance in a little universe called a collage. Come on down and go for a vacation. And that's Honolulu storyteller and collage artist Jeff Gear talking with HPR's Lillian Song. His art show, Dreams of Waking, is at the Downtown Arts Center on Oahu through February. Uh, Gear will be there in person on Saturday, January 27th, and Saturday, February 3rd for an artist talk. 
starting at 2 p.m. Look for a link to more information on our website. You'll find it on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org after the show. This week's Mono Minute features the calls of a Hawaiian seabird that some fishers call tuna birds, but you may know them as the Ao uh, or the Newell's Shearwater. Recordings come to us thanks to the Zeno Kanto. Uh, here is University of Hawaii at Hilo, Professor Petchkart. Ao, also known as Newell's or Hawaiian Shearwaters, are one of the few seabirds that breed only in the Hawaiian Islands. They have a wingspan of a bit less than three feet, and both sexes have black-colored backs with striking white undersides. A'o belong to a foraging guild known as tuna birds, because when fisher people see them diving into the water, that often means there's tuna below. A'o can even use their wings to swim to depths of over 150 feet in search of small fish and squid. A'o spend almost their entire lives at sea, first come to shore to breed when they're six or seven years old. They nest in colonies, mostly on the steep, fern-covered slopes of Kauai, with much smaller colonies on most of the other main Hawaiian islands. The low, moaning calls you can hear around their colonies at night sounds a bit like their name. They use sharp claws in their feet, to dig a deep burrow in which they lay and take care of just a single egg. An old Hawaiian proverb that is said of the human mother of an only child goes, Ho'okahi no hua aka'o, or the a'o bird lays but a single egg. Males and females take turns incubating the egg and often sit on it for a week or longer before they're relieved by their mate, who has been fattening up at sea for their turn. A'o have been in serious decline over the past few decades, primarily due to predation at the nest by introduced cats and other predators, but also because when fledgling birds leave the nest for the first time at night, they're very attracted to lighting on streets and around buildings. This can lead to what's known as fallout, where the birds become grounded and susceptible again to being eaten by cats and dogs. In response, the Save Our Shearwaters group, or SOS, has set up stations around Kauai where citizens can bring down birds for rehabilitation. Protecting colonies from predators and reducing outdoor lighting at night during certain fall and winter months are two important ways we can reverse the decline of these important native Hawaiian seabirds. For Hawaii Public Radio, this is Patrick Hart from the UH Hilo Department of Biology. 
Support for Manu Minute comes from the Hawaii Audubon Society. For more than eight decades, fostering community values that work to protect Hawaii's native wildlife and ecosystems. Learn more about membership and other ways to help at hiaudubon.org. it's time for our backyard quiz answer. Earlier we asked you for the name of the Hawaiian monarch whose crown was robbed of its jewels and the person charged for the crime. After the overthrow in 1893, a full inventory of Ilani Palace was conducted. During the process, inspectors came across an empty leather chest that was supposed to contain the crowns of King Kalakaua and Queen Kapi'olani. The queen's crown was later found at... um, Uh, at her home while the king's was missing all of its precious jewels, including a six-carat diamond. After interviewing several guards who were on duty, one suspect stuck out. That man was 25-year-old Corporal George Ryan. After searching his hotel room, a small package containing a dozen small diamonds was found. Ryan was arrested and charged with larceny of the crown jewels. The six-carat diamond was eventually recovered from Ryan's sister. He had mailed it to her home in Missouri, but it has since disappeared. As for the rest of the stolen gems, pearls, opals, rubies, and emeralds, they were never recovered. And there were no winners today. Have an idea for the quiz? Write to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org. Classical musician Midori is one of the most well-known violinists in the world. The Japanese-born performing artist exploded on the concert stage as a child prodigy more than 40 years ago. Tonight, she'll perform on the University of Hawaii at Manoa campus. It's a much-anticipated concert after the pandemic scrap performance dates in recent years. Midori spoke to Craig De Silva. He's HPR2's evening, co- uh, evening concert host. They talked about her longevity as a performer and nonprofit projects that promote classical music to underrepresented communities. Well, thank you, Midori, for speaking with us. It's an honor and a pleasure to uh, have you with us. So thank you very much for thank being you. here. And um, it seems like, you know, that we grew up with you, or rather you grew up with us. Uh, talk about how your music style or your approach has matured over the years as you've matured as both a person as an, an, and an artist? I've always loved music, and um, I've always performed, and it's always been such an enjoyable part, um, such an important part of my life. And I know that there has been a change, because we're constantly changing. But to describe that uh, in an artistic way, or how artistically these changes are making an effect, this is something that, you know, we don't often um, do such a great job with words. (laughs) Well, do you ever go back and listen to some of your early recordings? I don't. um, I don't particularly listen to my own recordings um, unless it's something I'm studying. And, you know, for study purposes, yes, I listen to my you know, rehearsal recordings, and I listen to different things. Uh, but it's not something that, unless I 
um, do it out of, it's basically really out of necessity for the study purposes. I don't. And, you know, like I said, you've almost grew up in front of our eyes, um, starting as a child prodigy. And, you know, we've seen child prodigies come and go over the years, but uh, you have the chops and you've showed that you have what it takes for to be an artist uh, in the long term. I think that um, it's important to remember that um, sometimes the public sees a young person who is very, very, very um, accomplished and has achieved a lot, and, um, who perform when he or she is very young, and then, then later decides not to do it. And it's, uh, you know, we have to remember that it's actually for many, it, it is actually a public, de- uh, it is a very specific decision that they made not to pursue it. I know, I, for example, I have a few friends who were also known to be um, prodigies who decided not to pursue a career, uh, because they were interested in other things and they decided that this wasn't the right thing for them. Um, it was a choice that they made, um, not a choice that was uh, imposed on them. In my case, I wanted to pursue it. I wanted to continue. I loved being on stage. I wanted to pursue this career. Um, and that recognition to want to pursue a career, pursue music as a career, that came quite late for me, in fact. Uh, maybe because it came late, um, I became much more aware than when I was much younger that there were responsibilities that came with having a career, uh, what it actually meant, what it meant to be responsible for having a career. Perhaps those things helped. Um, And so it's still a very conscious decision to pursue this career, which I love. I'm glad to be able to pursue it. Um, I'm glad to be able to do um, different projects that come with this career. Um, I love being able to learn music. I love to be able to um, see that music can bring people together. So um, I would say that music is a very, very important part of my life. It always was. But also to think of this career as something that um, come with that comes with responsibilities, a lot of work, um, and needing to work. Um, I think it really these things all fuel me very much. And I know you work with a lot of young people. Um, what do you tell them? Um, if they're looking to music as a career, something long-term? There are also many different sides to a career. There are many different career paths that one can take in music. Um, I think we all, each individually, uh, will have to find it. And I think, for me, what's so important is that what is the bottom line with this career? I love music. That's the bottom line. And I love performing, and I love um, spending my career in music. And you mentioned that you're involved in many programs. Uh, One of them is the Partners in Performance. Can you talk about that a little bit? This is a program that is already past 20 years. um, And 
I started this with um, the award that I received from Avery Fisher, uh, called the Avery Fisher Award. And when I was given this prize, I wanted to do something that would bring honor to the legacy of Avery Fisher, who was passionate about bringing music to all corners of the United States. And um, not just in urban centers where we would expect to have multiple concert halls, multiple orchestras, um, many different opportunities for people to learn about music, to be exposed to live music. But his idea was really about bringing music everywhere, making music available everywhere. And so that's when I got this idea of starting Partners in Performance, where we would be able to work with community-minded arts presenters, um, especially those that may not be in what might be considered to be a typical routing for um, a concert tour. And in bringing chamber music, not an orchestra, but in bringing chamber music, duos, trios, quartets, that it made it possible for us not to be restricted to going to venues where there was a large enough space, for example, to have 90 people all together. Uh, and just being two players or three players together, um, it makes much more of an intimate, I think, uh, kind of an experience for all of us, performers and the public alike. And so it really connects music with the listeners and the players and making a full circle between the players and the listeners. So with these things in mind, I started Partners in Performance, and during the pandemic, of course, we couldn't publicly perform as much, and you know, we switched to doing things uh, online. And we are constantly thinking about different ways to bring music, to bring chamber music, to bring um, these opportunities to community-minded presenters that can also work together with us to really make those connections. We've been listening to violinist Midori talking with HPR2's evening host, Craig De Silva. Midori serves as a messenger of peace for the United Nations, using music to connect communities and break down barriers of inequality. She'll be performing at UH Manoa's Orvis Auditorium tonight at 7 p.m. Go to the conversation page of our website later today for more information. Well, we have to go now, but up tomorrow we take a closer look at the lawsuit recently filed by the Office of Hawaiian Affairs over the Mauna Kea Authority, whose work is just about to get underway. Leave your feedback on our talkback line, 808-792-8217, or email talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. 
The conversation is available as a podcast on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere you tune in to listen. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.